So we are, as a church, reading through the Bible over 32 weeks using a resource called The Story. It's an abridged NIV Bible that is in chronological order, and, it, and the, all the sections are connected together in such a way that you can understand how the whole story goes, the, the, the narrative of Scripture. It's been awesome. Our small groups are doing it, going through the Bible. Our children's ministry is going through it. We're going through it on Sundays here. And we're getting the big picture of what God uh, did for his people, or does for his people, and how we all fit into that. So today, we're in chapter 9, Ruth 1 to 4. I'm really excited this morning to take a break from the relative bleakness and human misery that was Joshua and Judges. You know, the last two weeks we've been looking at how God's people would promise to follow him. You know, remember Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Promise to follow him, but then they'd rebel. And then they would be sent into judgment by God so that they could be made uncomfortable enough to repent. They'd cry out to God, and then God would, re- would send a judge to, or a tribal leader to rescue them and raise them up. As long as the judge lived, they had relative peace. But that's the story of Joshua and Judges. And, uh, but this little story that we're looking at today in the book of Ruth happens during the time of the Judges for context. So that's, this is a small story that's happening in the midst of this big story of Israel. It's really an incredible little story. And it's an awesome story for the season of Advent because in this story we see what seems to be a, a series of random events. As Jen said, God is not mentioned very much in this book. But these series of seemingly random events leads to the birth of one of, G- of, of uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, it says in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Christ, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father, father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. So this series of events that happen in this story that doesn't really talk too much about God leads to the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I am, I am definitely standing in awe as I was looking at this text today. It's just four chapters. It's just 85 verses long. Uh, but as I looked at this, this text, I was in awe of this thing we see throughout the Bible where God is completely focused on an individual's life, like Ruth, like Naomi, completely focused on their life and, and what, what's going on with them, while at the same time being completely focused on the big picture of what's going on among his people. So in the time of the judges, as we see God in, in the story of Ruth, they're in a time of rebellion, and so they, they're in a time of captivity. They cry out to God for food and water, and God hears them and gives them the food and the water. All that's happening while God is simultaneously working with Ruth, Naomi, and, and all these guys to bring about his purposes. It's an amazing thing. So this is God holding the big picture and the small picture. A lot of times people, because we are human and because we're limited by what we know of personalities that we know, you know, we, we many times people have said to me or have, have, have had this idea that God's so busy with running the world, he doesn't have time to see me or know me. You know, that's a kind of a, a, a forlorn idea that we have. But in the scripture from the Old Testament onward to the New Testament, we see that he is the God who sees people. He sees individuals. He sees their plight. He sees your life situation right now. And he's working in your life situation just as hard as he's working on his sovereign plan in the world. 
That's an amazing thought. Only God can do that. There are times uh, in the Bible where we see this big idea concept, which is called providence. Called providence, which is a key theme in the story of Ruth. Now, there are times when, when God will do a miracle, right? Uh, and against the natural laws of the world, God will make a supernatural thing happen that's not, not normal. A miracle would be like a divine healing, where God heals someone of a disease that they have, where God touches someone's body, their mind, their soul. Uh, an example of a miracle could be a miraculous escape from a prison. In Acts 3, uh, a man who has been lame from his birth is miraculously healed by Peter. That's a miracle. This man had never walked before, but once they healed him, he was able to walk by God's power. In Acts 12, when Peter is locked up in prison, God miraculously does a miracle and breaks down the doors of the breaks down the chains that they were chained with, and they are to be able to escape out of that prison. That's a miracle, and miracles are super amazing and incredible. And if we were to pull this room and say, "Come up, even if you've shared the story before, come up and share about a miracle that you've heard of or encountered," people would be able to tell you about a miracle in their life. And sometimes the most amazing miracles are hidden in the quietest people. As you get to know them, they share with you a miracle that God did in their life. We've seen God answer prayer for healing in our church, for instance. But the way that God normally works in everyday life with him is through his divine providence. And I think about providence as, after the fact, you look back and see this series of events led to something that feels like a miracle. So it's like a miracle that you realize after the fact. You look back and see, God has used all things in my life to bring about this outcome. It's amazing. How did he do that? It says uh, on the Gospel Coalition website, I read this, this uh, definition of providence. God's providence is the working of his power to uphold, to guide, and care for his creation. Some theologians describe this as continual creation as opposed to the notion that God created the world and then stepped back away from it. The providence of God leaves no room for chance or competition between God and another power. God, as the primary cause, causes everything, but this does not remove the ability of creatures to cause or act. Rather, God grants to all creatures their power to act as causes in the world. And I would add to this, God works his plan out through the free will choices that people make or the circumstances they're in. I have certainly seen God's providential hand in my life, and when I look back on it, it feels like a miracle to me. And I'd like to share a quick story that is, is so amazing to me that every time I tell it to myself, I can hardly believe it. Okay? So you've, you may have heard this story already. Indulge me, okay? So in 2005, I was living in Broad Alban, New York, about uh, 45 minutes from here. I had become committed to serving at New Life Fellowship Church, this church. And I'd been a Christ follower for several years at this point. I did not work at the church. I was not a pastor. I was not a staff member. Nothing official. But I was heavily involved both in leading worship at the church as a volunteer and also leading a weekly small group in the church. It was, the church had become many, in many ways the most important thing in my life over time. I just loved the body here. I worked at a warehouse during the week in Johnstown, New York. And then I commuted to Saratoga for small group and worship team and worship team practice and for services. You know, I was doing at that time what many of you do, just volunteering and putting your heart into the church, which is, which is awesome. Um, 
solidifying my membership in the body of Christ. But this involved that 40-minute drive, uh, both one way and then the other, you know, three or four times a week. So since I lived in Broad Albany and did not have my own place in Saratoga, we met for our small group in my friend Jacob's house on King Road. And Jacob would not, be, would not disagree with me when I said uh, he lived in a slovenly conditions at the time. <laughs> he is, you know, we were all young adults. But each week after a long shift from 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the warehouse where I worked in Johnstown, I'd hop into my car every Wednesday, drive to Jacob's apartment for small group. Small group didn't start until 7, but I needed about an hour and a half to get the house in shape uh, for, for group. Just a fact. If you're listening, Jacob, from, from Kansas... Sorry, dude. If you were here, you could defend yourself. Um, so I cleaned Jacob's, Jacob's apartment and then waited for the small group to show up. So this got extremely tiring, as you might imagine. And I began to feel that I needed to move to Saratoga Springs in order to be close to the church that I loved and ministered at effectively. So I began to pray about this. And as I prayed, my heart's desire became to live somewhere between New Life Fellowship Church right here and Broadway, somewhere between these two areas, uh, because I wanted to be able to reach to, out to people downtown, but also be near my church. So one night at our small group at Jacob's house, I shared with my brothers and sisters in Christ my desire to move to Saratoga. And one person in the group actually offered me a room to rent in their basement in Stillwater. So I prayed about that, but then the next week I declined their offer because it still felt like being too far away from the church to me. It just felt like more of the same, just adding a little less time driving. So Sarah Whitmore, at the time, this is Sarah Jenks, if anyone knows Sarah uh, today, but Sarah, Sarah Whitmore at the time uh, asked me, where, where do you want to live? You turned down the Stillwater apartment, where do you want to live? And I said, between New Life and Broadway, you know, somewhere like around where the track is. And you know, you heard this, right, Jackie? <laughs> crazy. It's a crazy story. All right, so, so far so good. Everybody in group told me, you're going to have to find a roommate. It's very expensive to live here, right? I, I could only really afford 500, 550 bucks a, a month at this point. So I tried with several people to make them my roommates, and all of them flaked out. It just didn't work out. We got really close to having, being roommates, and then it just didn't happen. So that was kind of the end of that. I still had a desire to be here, but didn't have the means to get here. So in the summer of 2005, I visited an old friend of mine, uh, we had hung out in the summertime with her and her brothers. We'd worked at camp together. But she lived in Chicago. So in the summer of 2005, she and her brothers invited me to visit them in Chicago so we could hang out, have a good time. When I got there, you know, I had a great time hanging out with them, having fun. Um, one night during my visit, we were watching vi movies in the basement. And I came upstairs to get some more popcorn. And my friend's mother was there, who always took an interest in my life and asked me what I was doing and all these kinds of things. So she asked me about my work, about my life, about my church. She knew I loved this church here. And I ended up explaining to her my desire and prayer to move to Saratoga and how it had not worked out for me. I couldn't find roommates, didn't have the money, didn't, there was nothing available. She then said to me, you know, at our old church we used to go to in Massachusetts, there was an older couple who has an empty downstairs apartment in Saratoga. So someone in Chicago tells me about someone in Massachusetts who has an apartment in Saratoga. I guess their aging aunts had lived in this apartment, and then they died, and the apartment was just empty. Hadn't been, had anyone in it for two years. 
So she gave me their number. So when I got home from Chicago, I called these people in Massachusetts, and they were excited to meet me. And the address was 203 East Avenue. And when I, when I got to the front porch, I looked to my right, and I could see the track. I could see the track. When the landlords came uh, to meet me, we went inside. They were lovely Christian people. They were, they were former missionaries. And they explained to me that this house was very special to them. The house has, had always been used for small groups and Bible studies and hymn sings. That was what this house had been used for in the past. And there was a beautiful piano that they had used for that purpose. It's in my house right now, thanks to Jerome and several strong men in our church. But I explained to them that I was desiring to move to Saratoga in order to have a small group um, and to, to worship with people from my church. And they got very excited about that. Uh, and they agreed to let me rent the apartment, which was very exciting. There was the problem of the money, though. So I said, well, you know, right now I need to save up some money, so can I move in in several months? I need to save up some extra money. I can only really have $550 a month right now. Um, and they said, you can rent it out for whatever you can afford now. Then when you get more work or get a roommate, then we can raise the price. They just wanted me in this apartment. So they decided to rent me the apartment for 550 bucks. I got a second job at Dick's Sporting Goods across the street here. Um, and I spent the next 10 years leading small groups in this living room, in this house. And it's where also where Jackie and I met and ended up getting married in that small group, which is another story of God's providence. But this is not all about me. Um, so here's what you need to take away from the story. Now, I was led to something very specific. I was seeking God's will. I was doing it because I wanted to glorify God in my church, right? So I had a pure heart. I visited my friend in Chicago whose mother knew someone from Massachusetts who had an apartment that they were willing to rent me in the exact location I wanted to live and prayed for for less than I could have possibly imagined. Um, this is not a miracle in the sense of a divine healing, but when you look back at the story, it's a miracle. It's amazing. God's providence. God working in his power to guide, uphold, and care for his creation. Leaving no room for chance. Even though we all sin and fall down in many ways and mess things up, even so, God's providential will moves forward, even through our poor choices. And if you're a believer this morning, Romans 8.28 is about the providence of God. God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. So when you think about Naomi and the scriptures, we're going to read this story. She becomes a, a widow. She loses everything. You know, God was using even that for her good, as we'll see. So this, this short four-chapter book answers the question of how God is involved in things that seem, are seemingly random in our lives, even through our human choices and our sin, bringing about his purposes, nonetheless. You know, God is in the hardships. He's in the joys. He's in the pain. He's in the, the happiness. And he's focused on the big picture and the small picture at the same time. Amazing. The book of Ruth begins by telling us about the time that the story occurs. In Ruth 1.1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled. You know, last week, there was no king in Israel. After the time of Joshua, the Israelites were in the promised land. But everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. There was no king. 
And everyone just began to do as they saw fit. And because of the human's heart, heart's propensity towards evil and selfishness um, and idolatry, what they saw fit to do was worship the gods of the people that were in the land through child sacrifice, through perverse sexual immorality, which would make your hair curl, I guess. I don't know. Is that the expression? It's just uh, really, really messed up stuff going on. And these, were, these were bad, dark days where people would sin, rebel against God. God would send them into captivity to discipline them. They would feel the pain of that captivity and then cry out to God, and he would raise up a judge to deliver them. And this is a cycle of sin. Um, but this is no Peloton. This is the worst kind of cycle. This is pain. Yeah, I'm just stupid to joke. Um, um, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, crying out to God, being in captivity, getting delivered over and over and over again without end. But through all of that, God remembered his covenant and he was faithful to Israel despite all of this. But this is, this is a familiar story of being human. This is our story. This is what we do many times with God. So the, so the little book of Ruth, it begins in the days when the judges ruled at a time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, bad days. Let's read together from Ruth 1, 1 and 2. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of their two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. A lot of different names appear in these first two verses. Uh, Naomi's husband's name is Elimelech, which means my God is king. So her husband is a godly man. Nonetheless, he took his family from Bethlehem into a Moabite place where all kinds of detestable practices were happening. There's all kinds of sin going on. He was a godly man, but he felt the, the, the famine. And so he took his family to a very dangerous place for their, good, for their well-being. His wife's name is Naomi, which is the name of my youngest daughter. It means pleasantness and sweetness, which I like. Uh, one of the sons is named Malon, Malon, which means sick or sickly. The second son is named Killian, which means wailing, weeping, and crying. At this time, in, in, people named their kids after how they were feeling at the time. So imagine that if you did that. <laughs> uh, imagine if we, if we did that, right? Um, named our kids after the bad circumstances of, of their birth. Uh, they were Ephrathites. They were descendants of Joseph's son, Ephraim. And they were in Moab among the Moabites, which were descendants of Lot, Abraham's uh, relative, where they worshipped a god called Chemosh, who demanded blood sacrifice and child sacrifice to worship him. And of course, unheard of sexual violence, things that you can't uh, are just so dark. So in these days when the judges ruled, Israel was in this famine. They were, in the, they were experiencing the consequences of their rebellion from God. To save the family, Elimelech travels to Moab for food and water, leaving behind the family's land in Bethlehem. So Naomi and Abimelech's two sons, Malon the sickly, Kilian the weeping, wailing guy, um, it gets worse. 
Ruth 1, 3 to 5. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Elimelech dies. And in this patriarchal society in which Ruth takes place, as Jen shared, without a husband, without sons, you were pretty destitute. You know, as a woman, it was very hard to get by in the ancient world. And, uh, and so this is a really sad situation. So sad that Naomi actually changes her name to Mara, which means bitterness. So she changes her own name based on her life circumstances. Furthermore, Naomi and Abimelech's, Abimelech's children marry Moabite women, which are traditionally the enemies of Israel. One named Orpah, which is actually Oprah Winfrey. Her parents tried to name her Orpah, but they misspelled it. So that's where she, well, she's named after Orpah. And you get a car. Look under your chair. Yeah. Um, so Limelech dies, the sons marry Moabites, the enemies of Israel, um, Orpah and Ruth. Ruth 1, 6-7. Let's move on in this text. Now when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living in Moab and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah, to Bethlehem. So Naomi, being a godly woman, she heard that God had heard the prayers of his rebellious people and was coming to deliver them. He had raised up a judge. And he come to their aid in the famine. So she decides to head back to Israel, to Bethlehem, where her family, her husband, still had land in his name in that place. She was probably going to Bethlehem to sell whatever possessions they had and to sell the land because all of the farmers in the family were dead. And they needed the money just to stay afloat. And what this would happen, what would happen through this situation in Israel is she would sell the land, they'd use the money that they had, and then they'd be in indentured servitude for the rest of their lives. So losing the land is kind of like losing everything. You, it's all your possessions. It's your husband's name. Your family name is lost when the land is gone. And this, this is truly just a terrible story for her. But in God's providence, she moves back to Bethlehem, which is the place that God prophesied that Jesus Christ, Naomi's distant descendant, would be born. Remember that genealogy from Matthew? The city of David. It's kind of like when I went to, to Chicago after being dejected about not being able to find a place to live in Saratoga. It just is kind of like that. Um, and then God does something amazing. Ruth 1, 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I'm going to have more sons. I, am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. 
even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Shows you where Naomi's at. She feels that the Lord's actually against her at this point. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Incredible. Incredible. Orpah does the sensible thing. She goes back to Moab, her own people, to find a husband. So she's not in poverty. Ruth does this incredibly beautiful and really sacrificial thing in her youth. Staying with Naomi, going to a foreign land. I mean, Bethlehem was a foreign land to her. She was a Moabite without any sort of social power to fall back on, to live on welfare for the rest of her life with her mother-in-law. Because who in Israel would want to marry a Moabite woman? That was something that would have been detestable to them because of their enemy relationship with Moab. But this scene with Naomi and Ruth is, is, a, is just a beautiful scene, right? That, that picture. You know, and, and what this is, is Ruth converting to be a person is a part of the people of God. She gives up her heritage as a Moabite. She leaves her people behind, and she pledges to worship the God of Naomi and to, and to stay committed to Naomi all the days of her life. Ruth 1.18 When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? So the, I guess the gossip around town started. Could, must, that must have been painful as well. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Again, from her perspective, it makes sense she'd feel this way. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. As we're going to see, all of these happenings are from God. All these happenings are from God. God sent Naomi and Ruth to Israel during the time of the barley harvest for a reason. Now God had developed um, in Israel this beautiful system of social welfare that we're going to learn about today in his law uh, where he made provision for the poor made provision for the widows and strangers aliens not native born people in the land and one of those things that God set up was the law, the law of gleaning which is what you see here kind of a little bit more uh, barley there in Leviticus 19 and also in Deuteronomy 24 God's law to Israel's binding law that he gave to Moses said when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. 
It's just this beautiful provision God makes for people that are not even a part of Israel to care for the poor, the fatherless, and the widow, the destitute. And as we're going to see, it's not the only provision that God made for people that were in bad circumstances and disenfranchised in the land. Ruth 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. He's a close relative of her deceased husband. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So by happenstance, she ends up in the field of Boaz. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his, of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? God's providence. Even working through this guy thinking that this girl is pretty. And this certainly reminds me of, uh, of my story as well. Um, this, this pivotal moment in God's providence. So Ruth happens to be gleaning in the field that belongs to a close relative of Naomi's husband during a time that happened to be the barley harvest. And he takes note, and he happened to take notice of her. So what we should learn, and, and, and this, is, this is the moment when we're going to learn about the second provision that God made for the poor and the widows and the, de and the destitute in his law. In Leviticus 25, God, uh, God provided a special person to a family that was poor and suffering and in danger of losing their family land. So this man was named the family's Goel, or kinsman redeemer. So in verse 25 it says, If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. So this redemption from the Goel, from the kinsman redeemer, included taking on the widow and the family of the people that owned the land and carrying on the descendants of the deceased husband so that his family name would not be blotted out from history. In other words, the firstborn son of the kinsman redeemer would be a child in the name of the person whose land that was. And thus their empire would continue. But the kinsman redeemer themselves had nothing really to gain through this, this enterprise. This was simply something that God commanded his people to do. This is the right thing to do. Provide a, a person to stand up for the poor and the oppressed and the widow. And when they're forced to sell their land, this person can buy the land and buy them and then continue the family line of the person whose land it was. The kinsman redeemer did not gain the wealth of the land, but just was kind of, it was kind of like a, my, my seminary teacher said, he was like a hero. He was like a hero that kind of came in and saved the day. Sometimes even to the detriment of his own estate. The kinsman redeemer had to have three qualities in order to, to do this ministry. They had to be fit, which means closely related to the deceased person. They had to be willing to take on the risk of um, buying this land and everything that went with it. And they must have the means, they must have the money to make this happen. God is timing everything perfectly in his providence for something amazing to happen for Naomi and Ruth. Ruth 2, 6. The overseer replied to Boaz, she is the Moabite who came from Moab with Naomi. 
She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another, in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's a beautiful image. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to me, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves. Don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Do not rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered. It, amount, it amounted to about FF. 30 pounds, 30 pounds. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over when she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work today? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Naomi sees what's going on here. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers, our guardian redeemers in our family. So this amazing arrangement goes on for a while with Ruth leading in the field. And as this happens, Naomi begins to plan for something a little more. Naomi tries to point things in a direction that they're all going to get redeemed by Boaz. So one day, in Ruth 3, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and it was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. This is the same language as finding shelter underneath the wings of the Almighty, the, the wing of his garment, right? The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. Well, that was a brave move on her part, right? To do this. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater 
than that which you showed me earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another person who is more closely related than me. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could recognize. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. So, you know, don't want the rumors to start. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her. And he added, he gave me six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Smart move, you know, kissing up to the mother-in-law, I think. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled. Four. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. The city gate was where all legal transactions happened in the city. So this is a place of law and, and, uh, and, and agreements and contracts. Boaz said to this man, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And at this the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it for yourself. I cannot do it. Probably this was uh, a man that had a family already, and he was concerned about compromising his own possessions. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders of the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez and Tamar born to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The living, women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, etc., etc., the father of Jesus Christ. 
amazingly in this story, God gives Naomi a son to carry on her husband's legacy, gives him the land, provides for everybody through his ancient law, which he had given, that made provisions for gleaning and for a kinsman redeemer. Um, God made provision for them. And the descendant, and all of this crazy mixed up story of uh, Obed, Jesus Christ, our Savior from the line of David. Amazing. This shows, this story shows, you know, God's amazing providence. How he works through a series of on-purpose accidents, if you will, to accomplish his will. That he's dealing with the entire nation of Israel while still doing this microscopic dealing with Ruth and Naomi. And this kind of providence, this is how it relates to us today, this kind of providence from God doesn't just happen in the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, or just in the story of Pastor Nathan and his downtown apartment from years ago. God's providence is working out in the life of every believer who loves God and is called according to his purpose. Uh, whether you are feeling joyful about your life or whether you're saying, it's so bad, I almost wish I could just cease to exist. I'm bitter. God has done something terrible to me. No matter where you are in that spectrum, um, God is working a plan and in his sovereignty for your good, for the good of people around you. And it's a very mysterious thing. I don't know how God does it. I don't know how our free will weaves into God's sovereign uh, providential plan, but I just know that it does. And there's nothing that we can do to stop it. And Jesus, uh, who came from Boaz's family tree, is our kinsman redeemer. He's the one who redeemed us. There's an amazing, uh, and I'm going to end with this, passage in Revelation. It says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Whenever there was a property deed, there was a scroll with seven seals on it, written on both sides, that was kept in the tabernacle. And so, uh, when the kinsman redeemer would approach the tabernacle, he'd look at the outside of the scroll with the conditions on it, and he'd agree to take on the property. But here's Jesus, in a cosmic way, taking the scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And the angel proclaims in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy to be a kinsman redeemer? But no one in heaven or on earth was, or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll in seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding gold bowls of incense to the prayers of God's God has heard the prayers of his people who are living in a strange land as foreigners who are vulnerable and destitute. And God has gone into the tabernacle and he has taken the scroll, the property scroll, and he has broken the seven seals and redeemed all of us as his people. God, you know, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And he's working both in our, in our small stories of our lives and in the big picture story redemption he's doing in the world at all times. As the worship team comes forward, I want to lead us in a prayer. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for the story. Thank you for the beauty of, of your work, Lord. Sometimes it's like a chute coming through concrete, um, breaking through against all odds, bringing your will to pass. I pray that no matter where we are in our journey, Lord, that we would have hope this morning. Because if we love you, if we're called according to your purposes, you will work all things out, even the hard things, for our good, for the good of, of those who are called according to you.